Amen. Well, good morning again, St. Paul's. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Ryan Spooner. I am the pastor here uh, at St. Paul's. I got here in March, so this is uh, just coming up on the end of my sixth month here. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it so far. Um, I like to try to make it a point to say hello to new faces, uh, but if for some reason I don't say hello to you, please don't be shy about coming up and introducing yourself. I'd love to get to know new people. Um, so we are on week nine now in a series uh, on the book of James. And just to let you all know where we're headed from here, we've got about a month left in our series on the book of James. And then in October, we're going to be starting a series that I'm very excited about. Uh, it's called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like. And uh, we are going to be looking at the parables where Jesus uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, I, we've been in the epistles for a while, so I think it'll be a fun change of pace to start to look at those parables and get into the Gospels. Um, and, as Keith mentioned, if you have been anticipating small groups, if you've been waiting for small groups, uh, that first week in October, we're hoping to also launch small groups at the same time. So hopefully you don't have to wait uh, too much longer for that. But before we get there, we've got more to learn from James. And the subject of the passage that we're looking at today is community. And uh, what to do when a community is broken. The church James was writing to was a broken community. Uh, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you should know that by this point. Uh, the rich were being favored over the poor. And what we're going to find out this week is that there was a lot of fighting and quarreling and slandering going on in the church. And in our passage this morning, James responds to that. And he identifies what I believe is the key, the most critical component to having a healthy community, especially a healthy church community. So I want you to imagine that this passage is kind of like a book sitting in Barnes & Noble, and it says, The Key to Healthy Community, a clickbaity title. Eventually, we're going to get to, to answering that question, uh, the key to a healthy community. I'm not going to reveal it quite yet, but we're coming to it. So since this is kind of a long passage, uh, instead of reading it all at once, I want us to take it piece by piece. And um, I'll have the text up on the screen as we go through it, but I do encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it up and follow along. Uh, we're going to be reading from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. But before we get started, let me just say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the chance to look at your word together. And God, we just ask um, that these would not just be words on a page, uh, but that they would be uh, your words to us. Um, that your Holy Spirit would um, cause them to uh, penetrate deep into our hearts and our souls uh, so that they can renew our minds and uh, transform our behavior so that we can become more like you and um, live more into the purpose that, that you have called us to, Lord. Uh, we ask that you'd be with us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in verse 1, it says, James writes, uh, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. 
So what James is saying here is something that's very obvious, and yet it's easy to forget, uh, which is that the fights and quarrels that go on in our communities always arise from things going on under the surface in people. Uh, they come from unmet desires that we carry inside of us. Now, some of those desires are good, some of them are bad, but either way, we need to remember that we human beings, we don't behave arbitrarily. We don't just do things randomly. If we're fighting with someone, it's probably because we have a fear that a desire that we have is not going to be met. And I think it's so important for us to remember this, because sometimes when someone is being argumentative with us, we have this tendency to think, well, they're just trying to be difficult. They're just, they're just trying to be annoying. They just want to be difficult. But a more empathetic way of looking at a situation where we're in an argument is to say, what is the desire that this person has that's leading them to fight with me? You know, what, what, what is the important thing to them that they feel is under attack right now? Because when we can identify what that actually is, we have a better chance of achieving peace. So James states the obvious. He says, the community is filled with fighting because people have desires for certain things, but they can't have them. And he goes on to say, well, actually, sorry, I already read this. Uh, you desire to have, uh, you desire but do not have, so you kill. Sounds like a rough church. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't suffer any casualties in the process of changing our service time. Um, just to clarify, most scholars actually believe that James is using that word kill in a figurative sense. So it's kind of like, you know, when basketball team plays another team and really beats them severely, we might say, oh, they killed them. So what he's, what he's saying is that the people are being vicious to each other, but probably not that they're actually literally murdering each other. Um, so it is a rough church, but it's, not, it's probably not that rough. Um, <clears throat> so continuing on, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James says that these unmet desires that are leading to fighting and quarreling in the church are remaining unmet for two reasons. One, because people aren't asking God to meet those desires. They're not coming to God in prayer. Um, and two, because even when they do pray, their prayers are motivated by selfishness. So their prayers are, are motivated by nothing more than a desire for money and the pleasures that that money can bring. So God's not answering those prayers. And I think this is a very interesting aside that James gives us here because it tells us two really interesting things about prayer. Uh, two things that uh, maybe we, we don't always recognize. So the first thing it tells us is that there are things that God is willing to give us that he will not give us unless we ask. There are things God is willing to give us that he will not give us unless we ask, unless we pray. Now, like all analogies, what I'm about to say is imperfect, but hopefully it helps, okay? I think that prayer is kind of like ordering in a restaurant. So imagine going to a restaurant where God is the owner and he's the primary chef. So God has put together a menu of good options for you to eat. Good, satisfying meals. But you can't eat until you order, right? When you go to a restaurant, they don't just usually immediately bring food out to you. They wait for you to order. 
Um, so, and to stretch the analogy a little further, uh, what was happening in the church that James was writing to is that people were sitting at the table in God's restaurant, but they weren't actually placing orders. And they were getting hungrier and hungrier. And when you get hungry, you get angry. They were getting hangry. And they were fighting with each other. And James is saying, what you guys need to do is just order. You know, stop trying to get food from each other. Stop trying to satisfy yourself with the sugar packets on the table. And just, just order. Put in an order with the chef. And the second thing that James tells us about prayer here is that even though prayer has this power to unleash certain gifts that we would not otherwise receive unless we ask, there are certain requests that God will not grant no matter how hard we pray. And specifically, the, the requests that he's not interested in granting are the selfish ones. Um, so to go back to the analogy, there are certain foods that just aren't on the menu in God's restaurant. Uh, you can try ordering them, but if you do, the chef is going to say, sorry, that's not available here because that food is gross and disgusting. <laughs> okay. So continuing on in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? I know we don't use that word enmity very much, but it basically just means uh, conflict with or hostility against. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? The theme that James is trying to express here is that God is jealous for our love and allegiance. Notice how he addresses them. He says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. Now there are several metaphors in scripture that God uses to communicate to us what his relationship with us is like. There's the metaphor of a father and child, right? Uh, there's the metaphor of a shepherd and the sheep. But the metaphor uh, that we're seeing right here is a common one. It's the metaphor of marriage. And what we see time and time again in Scripture is that God is compared to a faithful spouse while his people are compared to a cheating spouse. And for any of you who have experienced the pain of being betrayed by a spouse or a romantic partner, I want you to take a moment to consider how remarkable it, it is uh, that God would, would humble himself and identify himself with a betrayed lover. That God, that God would be so humble as to say, this is what, this is what it feels like for me to identify with you in that pain. That our God is someone who, as this passage says, jealously longs for us. And notice, he doesn't just jealously long for our religious observance or the service that we can offer him. This passage says that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. In other words, he longs for the real us for our spirits. Another way of putting it would be that he longs for our hearts. He jealously longs for our hearts. 
And what James says is that what's going on in this church, all this fighting and quarreling uh, and selfish prayers, is proof that the people are committing spiritual adultery. Proof that, that their spirits are not being faithful to God. Uh, and, and James has a term for this unfaithfulness. He calls it friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this term, friendship with the world, because I think it can lead to some confusion. Uh, back when I was working in campus ministry, uh, for any UConn students here, I worked in campus ministry at UConn uh, before I went to seminary. So, um, in some ways, coming here is like being home again. Um, but when I worked in campus ministry, I was, I was meeting with a student who had a lot of questions about faith. And we were looking at a passage that talked about how we're not supposed to love the world. And he said something like, see, I don't get that. He said, how can I not love the world? There's so much beauty in the world. There's so much to do and see. Uh, am I supposed to only care about the afterlife? And I actually really love that he asked that question because it forced me to clarify something that's really important. Uh, which is that when scripture talks negatively about the world, it doesn't mean God's creation. It's a very important distinction for us to make. Uh, Genesis tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, and he declared them to be good. Uh, now, it also tells us that sin has tainted that creation, but that doesn't change the fact that God's creation is ultimately a good thing. And he loves it. God loves it. That's why he's gone to such great lengths to redeem it. Right? I mean, he, once sin messed up creation, he could have just tossed out the whole project and said, let's just start over from scratch. But no, he's, gone, he's done the hard work of redeeming it because he loves the creation so much. Now, that's, that's what the most famous verse in the Bible tells us, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So, for God so loved what? The world, right? So that student was right to recognize that creation is beautiful, and that there's so much to love and appreciate. And if by the world we mean God's creation, then absolutely we should love the world. God made it. We should, we should love the mountains. We should love the sky. We should love good food. Uh, we should love people and all the diverse cultures that they represent. I think that uh, one of the fruits of being in a good place spiritually and emotionally is that if you're in a good place, when you look around at the world on a daily basis, your heart is going to swell with appreciation at everything around you. Because there is so much beauty. You know, there is so much to love and enjoy. So when the Bible talks negatively about the world and friendship with the world, it's not talking about God's creation. Uh, when the Bible talks negatively about the world, it's actually, it's actually a shorthand expression for the sinful ways of the world. Okay, so keep that, keep that in mind. So when James talks about the world, he's talking about things like the tendency to favor the rich over the poor. He's talking about the tendency to be judgmental rather than merciful. He's talking about the tendency to look out only for oneself rather than one's neighbor. That kind of thing. But what he's not talking about is the tendency to love and enjoy and appreciate this life that God has given us. Really important distinction. So that distinction noted, 
James is saying that the church has chosen to participate in, in the ways of the world, uh, the selfish ways of the world, and that God is betrayed by that. Um, like a spouse that has been betrayed um, by a cheating spouse. God's looking at his people, mistreating one another, fighting with one another, behaving selfishly, showing favoritism, and it's breaking his heart. Now, we're about to get to the point in the passage where James identifies the remedy for these problems, where he gives the antidote. But I'm going to skip over that right now, because in verse 11, he actually talks about another aspect of the problem. And I'd like to talk about all aspects of the problem before we get to the solution. Uh, But skipping ahead to verse 11, here's what he says. He says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now I want to talk about this passage a little bit because I think it's really important for us to understand exactly what James means here. Um, I've noticed that the command not to judge is actually a really popular one these days. Uh, in our culture today, we like that one. Every culture has some commands that they like and some, some that they don't. Uh, but we like the don't judge one. Um, I think we like it because we value individualism in our culture. Uh, we don't like people telling us what to do. We're not big on authority. Uh, and so when we hear that the Bible, and Jesus specifically, says, do not judge, we have a tendency to think, well, that's a good command. I like that one. I'm going to remember that one. Uh, You know, if anyone ever tries to tell me to do something different than what I'm doing or that I'm doing something wrong, I've got a ready defense. Do not judge. Jesus says, don't judge. And I think what happens sometimes is that people will single out this command and they'll think of it as kind of really the only really important command in the Bible. And uh, when they do that, uh, they'll act as if the only sin, the only real sin, is if somebody tells somebody else that they've sinned. That's it. (laughs) That's the only real sin. So we have to be careful not to misunderstand uh, what James and Jesus are saying, because if that interpretation were true, then this whole letter would be sin, right? I mean, James is telling these people that they're sinning. He's he's giving them correction. The, The whole letter is all about that. I mean, he called them adulterers, right? Um, so we have to be careful how we read what James is saying here. Um, the command not to judge is not a command to never offer loving correction. What it is, is a command not to condemn. There's a big difference between those two C words, correct and condemn. Uh, Sometimes we think they're the same thing, but they're actually not. A condemnation is when you declare that someone else should be denied the grace of God. Uh, Condemnation is when you say to a person, you can go to hell, and you mean it. Uh, Condemnation is when you write a person off, you say, I've given up on this person, and God has too. That's condemnation. And that is what we are forbidden from doing. Because there's only one true judge of people's souls, and it's not us. Uh, So our job in the church is not to write people off. Our job is not to 
uh, deny forgiveness or to deprive people of second chances or third chances or fourth chances, etc. Right? Our job is to offer forgiveness. It is to offer 70 times 7, right? What Jesus said, all the times you're supposed to forgive. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't times where it isn't appropriate for us to lovingly offer our brothers and sisters correction. And we have to be very wise and discerning about how we do that. Um, um, but, but there is a place for that. And James is not forbidding that. But what we should never do when we correct somebody is have that correction come with condemnation. Never. Because as soon as we start condemning, we step into a level of authority that belongs only to God, not to us. Okay. So we've talked about the problems that were in the community, the fighting, the quarreling, the lack of prayer, the selfishness, the friendship with the world, the judging, the, con the condemnation. What's the remedy? What needs to happen in order for this broken community to heal? I said in the beginning that James identifies the key, the critical component. What is it? Okay, so here's where he gives us, gives us the answer. Starting in verse 6, that is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So to put it very simply, James says that the key to healing the community is for the people to come near to God. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Okay, that's good. But how do you come near to God? Okay, we know the Bible tells us God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. There's no mountain you can climb or no depths that you can go to that God isn't already there. So this is not a geogra geographic shift, right? This is a heart shift. And there's one word that summarizes this heart shift. One word. And that word is humility. Humility. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility is the key. I don't think we can overemphasize it. Humility is, um, it is like the gateway into the presence of God. Okay, so that raises the question, well, what exactly is humility? Humility is the ability to have an accurate view of who we are. It's the ability to recognize that we are not the center of the universe. And it's the ability not to think of ourselves more highly than we should. And the truth is, this does not come naturally to us. Uh, I was a psychology major at UConn. I remember learning about this thing called self-serving bias. Um, it's a phenomenon that we human beings tend to exhibit very consistently. Um, and the self-serving bias The self-serving bias is this tendency uh, for us to blame external things for our failures, but praise ourselves for our successes. So, for, for example, let's say uh, you're a student and you do really well on, a, on an exam. 
the self-serving bias makes it so that when you get the, that exam back, the first thing you say to yourself is, wow, I must be really smart. I worked super hard. I did a great job. I'm really great. Uh, but if you do bad on that same exam, the self-serving bias will lead you to say something like, well, I would have done better if the teacher wasn't so terrible. So when you do the, notice when you do well, the teacher never gets credit. You never get a great exam back and you go, oh man, the teacher is awesome. You know, this is, <clears throat> but the teacher does get blamed if you do bad. That's the self-serving bias. And studies show that we do this kind of thing all the time. We don't even realize it. Because each of us has this tendency, this desire to think highly of ourselves. Uh, and so we have these brain tricks that we use to raise our self-esteem, like the self-serving bias. But the problem with these brain tricks is that they actually disconnect us from reality. And what they do is they create conflict in our communities. Because what happens when the student who slacks off blames his teacher? The teacher's going to get upset, right? And probably justifiably so. So if you get a bunch of people together who are operating with these self-serving biases, that's inevitably going to lead to fighting, to quarrels, to slandering, to judging, basically to everything that James has been talking about. But humility, this ability to see ourselves as we actually are, is the antidote to that. It's the remedy. I mean, uh, let's, let's think about humility in the context of the problems that James has talked about, right? So James says uh, people are fighting and quarreling because they want things that they're not getting. So does, how does humility solve that problem? Well, when people are humble, they don't feel entitled to have all their desires met all the time. Prideful people think that they deserve everything that they want. Uh, but humble people recognize they're not entitled to have everything that they want. So humble people are a lot less likely to fight and quarrel over everything. Uh, James says that people are not going to God in prayer. So how does humility solve that problem? Well, when we're humble, we recognize that we can't get our needs met on our own. When we're humble, uh, we recognize, like James has said earlier, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, not from ourselves, right? And so when we're humble, we're going to be much more likely to ask God to meet our desires. James says people are judging one another. Again, humility is the antidote. Why? Uh, because when we're humble, we see ourselves as we actually are. And we recognize, if we're seeing ourselves as we actually are, that we are sinners. Right? And we recognize that the only reason that we are not condemned is because of God's grace. And when we know that about ourselves, we don't want to condemn other people. Because that's like condemning ourselves. Anytime we condemn somebody else, we're basically throwing ourselves under the bus with them if we really recognize our own state and our own need for grace. Now, remember earlier we talked about the difference between condemnation and correction, right? And about how um, the judgment that James forbids is not correction but condemnation. Well, I hope we can also see that humility is the antidote to the person who answers every correction with, don't judge me. Right? Because humility enables that person to receive correction rather than deflect it. Because humility enables that person to say, you know, you might be right about that. I, I'm going to think about that. Thanks for telling me. 
Because what humility does is it has this power uh, to, to enable us to recognize our sin. Uh, our self-serving biases, they're always trying to get us to deny our sin. They're always telling us, I'm good, nothing's wrong with me, other people are in the wrong. And that leads to chaos in the community. But humility says, I'm not perfect, there are things wrong with me, and I'm not always right. And that's the attitude that leads to peace. So James tells the church to embrace humility. And in this case, he knows that an embrace of humility is going to lead to sadness. Uh, you might be wondering, why does he command them to grieve and wail and turn their laughter into mourning? That sounds depressing, right? What, what's that about? What he's telling them to do there is to recognize that they've sinned and to lament that, to grieve over that. Because unless they do that, they're not going to change. Right now, their self-serving biases are keeping them from recognizing that they've done wrong. Uh, those self-serving biases are like a shield that's guarding them from the pain of acknowledging their sin. But James is saying to them, you've got to let that shield down, and you've got to let the pain in. You've got to be willing to let down your defenses and look the truth in the face. And yeah, it's going to hurt at first. When you see yourself for the sinful human being that you actually are, yeah, it is going to hurt at first. It is going to lead uh, to mourning. It is going to turn your joy to gloom. But it will be worth it because that moment of grief will be the first step to peace in your community and in your relationship with God. So here's the big idea that I want us to take away. If you remember nothing else from what was said this morning, this is the big idea. This is the thing to write down. It's humility is the path to peace. Humility is the path to peace. Now, before I close, I want to make one final point. Those self-serving biases that block us from seeing the truth about ourselves, they are really hard to overcome. Really hard. Uh, most of the time, we don't even notice that they're at work because we have that desperate desire inside of ourselves to see ourselves as better than we actually are. But there is something that can free us from that desperate desire. And that is the realization that God loves us anyway. Uh, there's one little line in the passage that I haven't talked about yet. It's in verse 6. It's just sort of wedged in the middle of the whole thing. And it simply says, but he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. God loves us in spite of our failures. He loves us in spite of our, um, our silly self-serving biases. And when we really believe that, we are free to let those self-serving biases go. Uh, we're free to lower the shield and see ourselves as we actually are. Because who we are, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our failures, is still deeply, unconditionally loved by God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you do uh, give us more grace. I thank you that, um, that you are God who enables us to see ourselves as we actually are. Um, and even though that leads to some pain, uh, even though it leads to the recognition that we have made mistakes, um, that we have done wrong and we have sinned against you, um, even though it leads to that, Lord, that, that realization uh, 
helps us to heal our communities, helps us to heal our relationship with you, God. I pray that you would bless us with genuine humility. Um, I pray that as we, as we uh, seek to follow you humbly, God, um, that you would heal any, any uh, relationships that are broken in our community, God. And um, I just thank you, Lord. I thank you for being a God that restores broken communities. Um, we ask, Lord, that uh, you would bring restoration in any places in our community where, where it needs to come. Uh, we give you thanks, Lord, and ask that you'd help us to uh, carry this word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.